Malachi 2.17 through 3.5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. I find in life, sometimes we place false expectations on different things. And there's other areas in life that you see that more and other areas of life that you see that less. See, the problem with false expectations is that when we have an expectation on something and then reality is different, we are left with that huge gap of disappointment. You see it with adult parents and their kids. I remember when I turned 16 years old, I had a good friend and on his 16th birthday, he got a, Cam a Camaro, a Chevy Camaro, a Z28 Chevy Camaro. And I remember when he got that car, his parents said, don't speed. <laughs> it was only a few months later that, I don't know what the threshold is when they, they threaten to take away your license, but that's where he was. And his parents weren't aware yet. You see, he'd gotten tickets so quickly, one after the next, that they hadn't even gotten into the mail home yet. And then they found out that he had all these speeding tickets. And, and I just remember them being shocked, stunned. They're like, what? How could you? Why would you? We told you not to speed. And I just remember, even as a 16-year-old, thinking, but you gave him a Camaro. I mean, of course he was going to speed. When I turned 16 years old, the car that I got to drive was a 1984 Buick LeSabre. You know who was not speeding when they were 16? This guy. You know why? Because that thing topped out at about 76 miles an hour. And at 76 miles an hour, it started shaking so fast that the whole thing felt like it was about to fall apart. My second car, when that one stopped working through a rod, my second car was a car I shared, which was a 1989 uh, Ford F-150, and, and I, don't, I don't understand how this works. I just know that the starter didn't work. So every time I turned the car on, I would have to pop the hood, open it up, and use a, a metal screwdriver and connect one piece to the other piece. And I still couldn't tell, maybe a mechanic out there is like, I know exactly what you're doing. I have no clue. I just know every time I started the car, it felt like I was hot wiring the car. And, uh, and that's, that's where I drove. And I, I can tell you, I didn't do a lot of nefarious things with that car because you couldn't. It was just physically impossible. I had another friend who got a, a Jeep when he turned 16. 
And a Jeep with, with like jacked up wheels and like the whole off-roading thing. Now in Colorado, if you've got an off-road Jeep, you can do cool things in the mountains and in the hills. That, that was not the case in Texas. The only thing that you could do with an off-road Jeep in Texas was either drive on the road or go mudding. Anybody out there ever been mudding? All right. So, so the thing about mudding is that there's not like national parks in Texas to go mudding on. Uh, so if you were mudding, it was either on your property or it was on someone else's property. And maybe they knew that you were mudding on their property and maybe they didn't know that you were mudding on their property. And my friend went mudding on somebody else's property that didn't know that they were mudding on the property. And then they got stuck and they had to call in a tow truck and the police got involved. And I remember his parents being just so shocked and they said, how could you, why would you? And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, what's the point of a jacked up Jeep if he's not gonna go do something like that? But we place false expectations on people and things all the time. And then when they don't meet those expectations, we are left with disappointment. Same is true in our relationship with God. Sometimes we place expectations on God that are too high, too fake, too wrong. Really, they are worldly expectations that we place on him. And when our expectations aren't met, we are disappointed. That's exactly what happens in the book of Malachi of the passage that we're about to read. That they had these certain expectations that they were placing on God and they weren't being met. And as a result of that, they were disappointed. They were frustrated, they were bitter, they were angry. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. We're gonna be in chapter two. We're gonna look at the very, Last verse in chapter two, Malachi chapter two, verse 17. I encourage you to bring your Bible to church, turn, but if you don't have your Bible, open up the app, it's on your phone or you can follow along with the screens. Here's what it says. God's talking, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now pause right there, because as a parent, that's one of the most relatable phrases in all of scripture. I remember when uh, we were kids. Uh, my dad was in the car with my younger sister and I, she was somewhere around upper elementary school and they were driving and my sister was a talker and she was talking and my, my dad at one point stopped and said, hey Beth, do you have something really important to say or are you just talking to hear yourself talk? Not a good parenting moment. I'll just tell you, don't write that one down. Okay, avoid that. And, and for a long time, I mean, she, my, my sister, she's, she's almost 40 years old. She still brings up that moment, like brings it up. Hey, dad, remember when you, and uh, just the way that life works. Now she has her own kids. And one of her, her kids is exactly like her. And man, he likes to talk. He likes to talk. And, and it was a couple of years ago, uh, she sent a message to the family. She said, now I get it. And now I understand why dad said that. Because sometimes uh, we feel wearied with people's words. Goes on to say, but you say, how have we wearied him? Then God gives the answer. Here's how you're wearying me. And in an important context, it's not saying that when we talk to God, if we talk too much to God, we are wearying God. Because throughout, especially the New Testament, you see over and over this idea of continuing to bring your concerns and your cares and your worries to God. And God got even given this illustration of, hey, continue to knock on the door, continue to knock on the door. So it's not that God becomes weary when we talk to him, it's the specific way in which they are talking to him that God is becoming weary of. And what were they saying? They were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice? And so, so here's what's happening is they're looking at the world around them and they're saying, there are some people that are evil people that are not good people and they have good things happening to them. 
God seems to be blessing them. They have money and they have wealth and they have health and yet they don't deserve it. They're bad, they're evil. Why is God allowing that to happen to them? And then in a way that seems like they're shaking their fist at God, they're asking where is God's justice? How could you God? Why don't you God? So that's the wrestle that they have. And God's gonna answer him. He says, behold, I send my messenger. Now we see this word messenger a couple different times. As a side note, if, if you wanna circle that word, uh, the word Malachi in Hebrew, that's the book, means messenger. So both these words in Hebrew is that word Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. It's actually talking about John the Baptist. It's looking ahead. And in the New Testament, this verse gets quoted about John the Baptist. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's a profound verse in the Old Testament. It's probably the single clearest verse in the Old Testament that is pointing ahead to Jesus. Because it's not just saying that God is going to send a messenger. It, this is talking about the messenger, not talking about Malachi. It, it's looking ahead to Jesus and it's saying that the Lord himself, whom you seek, is going to suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. That, that ties in with Lord's Supper, which we took earlier. That Jesus, when he's giving the Lord's Supper, he's saying that this is the new covenant, the covenant of his blood. He's looking ahead to the new covenant that will come through God himself coming physically into the temple as the messenger. It says, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So, so the person of Jesus coming as the messenger looks a little bit different than sometimes we think of as Jesus. Why? Because it says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap, he will sit at a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then, this is after the refining, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. We tend to always think of Jesus as, as the loving Jesus and Jesus is loving. And Jesus did come to bring grace and mercy. He's the, the representation of God and the way in which he lived helps us to understand who God is. But he also comes as a refiner. Now that's some verbiage that we don't really resonate with because probably you're not somebody in here that spends a lot of time smelting ore in your garage. I'm sure there's always somebody. So probably one of you does, but smelting ore is just not something that we're very familiar with. So here's some pictures of what that process looks like. Uh, you have a furnace, so kind of this outside area is a furnace. Uh, they can be much, much bigger than this. This is just a real small one because it's easy to see and understand. And then there is a, a, a cylinder that is like a big bowl uh, that is called a crucible. You, you recognize that word because when we talk about someone going through a crucible, this is the imagery that we're talking about. Uh, the, the crucible is uh, the, the bowl that the metal ore gets put inside of. And the crucible is made with a type of metal that, that has a really high heat in index, so it's not gonna melt as quickly. And then the ore is put inside of that crucible. Now, when 
they go mine, whether it's gold or silver, we tend to think of gold and silver and we think of it as a ring or we think of a necklace. And so we think of it as already refined. But when they're building it out of, digging it out of the earth, it's coming as just giant ore, it's big rocks. And so they take those giant rocks, they stick them inside of the crucible, and then the heat gets really, really hot. That as it gets really, really hot, what happens is that ore starts to melt. And as it melts, what happens is that the pure stuff goes to the bottom, and then the bad stuff comes to the top. So the dross in this next picture is this stuff that's coming to the top. So the dross comes to the top and they start to scrape it off that as it gets refined, it gets really hot. The good stuff goes down, the bad stuff comes up, they wipe it off. Now dross, uh, it, it represents something regarded as worthless or rubbish. What's the dross of the element? It's the junk that we don't want. And so they continue to do this method over and over and over again. They get it hot, uh, they let the dross come to the top, they remove the dross. And the way that they know that it's done, or at least the way that they used to know that it was done, they didn't have the, the, the methods that we have today of testing things or the chemicals. The way that they tested back in the day of when it was done is they would continue to do it until the refiner could see his or her face in the reflection of the ore. Do you get that picture? The refining process isn't done until the refiner can see their reflection in the ore. Uh, what's this a picture of with us and God? It's a picture of this. It means that God's refining process is used to see his image in our lives. So this is the picture that we don't wrestle with quite as much because we don't understand the refining process. Uh, but when you start to understand what it means, and, and as an interesting side note, they still use this process. Now it's more advanced. But still the way that they separate ores is through refining, through heat. Thousands of years later, we don't have some new way that doesn't use heat. We still have to smelt it and let the dross rise to the top and get rid of it so that the pure stuff remains. The picture that we are being given by God is that he wants to refine our lives, that Jesus came, Jesus comes into your life and my life so that he can refine us. Now, everything about the refining process sounds uncomfortable. It's an idea of being put into a crucible, having the heat turned way, way, way up. And when that heat gets turned way, way, way up, what happens? The junk in your life and my life rises to the top and God is clearing it away and clearing it away and clearing it away. And that ultimately through that refining process, what happens? We begin to see his reflection in us and through us. You see, I think sometimes we have the same expectations on God that they did in the book of Malachi. That they expect it to always be happy and God to always bless them and not bless anybody else. But what happens in life is we go through challenges and we go through difficulties. And scripture is full of verses that say exactly that. Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world. And yet when we go through those difficult times, those crucibles of life, we tend to shake our fist at God and say, why? Why could you do this? Why would you allow this? And yet here's what God is trying to reveal to you and reveal to me is that he wants to use those refining moments in our life to get the dross out and reveal his image in us. 
This same imagery about refining is used throughout scripture. There's a couple of verses I wanna point out. Proverb 25, four says, take away the dross from the silver and the smith has material for a vessel. What's this picture? It's saying that as long as the dross is a part of the silver, you can't make anything valuable with it. That you can't make a silver vase that has a bunch of impurities that are mixed in with the silver. No, first you have to refine it. You have to get rid of the dross. And then what you're left with, the ability to mold that into something that has value. The same is true in your life and my life. That God is saying that in order to use you for his good and for his glory, to give you the purpose he's designed you with, there is a refining process that we have to participate in. That he's removing the dross, removing the sin, removing the junk of our lives so that what is left is something that he can use. In Psalm chapter 12, verse six, it says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. How do you make an element more pure? Well, back in biblical times, they would just continue to refine it over and over and over again. This biblical number of seven, a complete number of times. And so it's, it's through the course of our lives that over and over again, God is wanting to refine and refine and refine. That next verse in Malachi, chapter three, verse five says this. After this refining process is done, after he's done his will, in the work of his people, it says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, it's an interesting thing that God does in his message because we see In chapter two, verse 17, they're complaining to God, they're shaking a fist at God. They're saying, God, you're not just. God, how are you allowing evil people to thrive? And then God's gonna turn it right back around on them. And and he's listing some sins that they themselves were participating in. He's saying, you see, when God refines us, uh, then we become messengers, a reflection of him to the world around us about who he is. And, and he's saying that the actions of that, I mean, that instead of shaking a fist at God and saying, God, where's your justice? He's saying, you yourself are not being just in how you're treating the widows and the sojourners and the fatherless. That's a temptation in life. Our temptation is to judge ourselves different than we judge other people. Uh, my son is 10. He loves sports. He's just gotten to the age where he can actually watch a whole sporting event. And during the NFL playoffs, every week we'd watch some kind of a game and he has the mindset that you have to pick a a team. So game would go on, he'd say, who are you cheering for? And I'm like, I don't care. I I don't know either of these teams. I don't live in either of these cities. I've never lived in either either of these cities. I don't know someone on the team. So I don't care who wins. It just doesn't matter to me. And, And he doesn't understand that. He's like, you've got to pick a team. And so he would always say, which team is better? I said, well, that team's probably better. Okay, that's who I'm cheering for because he likes to win. And so he would just be a bandwagon fan. He'd just jump on whatever bandwagon. So you can imagine uh, by the time we got to the Super Bowl, hey, dad, who's gonna win? I said, probably Kansas City. I think they're better. He said, all right, that's who I'm cheering for. And I tried to have that conversation. I was like, you are being a bandwagon fan and that is not okay. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, Kansas City is in the division with the Broncos and we are Broncos fans. So you're not supposed to cheer for them. You're supposed to hope that they lose, okay? We just went bad things on Kansas City. And he didn't understand that. And so he's cheering for Kansas City the whole game. And here's what would happen throughout the game. A call would go against Kansas City and he would be up in arms. He's like, what? That, that's his phrase. What? Are you kidding me right now? That is not pass interference. Let him play, ref. <laughs> and, and then a call would go the other way. A call would go for Kansas City against Philadelphia. And he'd be like, that's a good call. That's a good call right there. That's a, uh, anytime there was one of the coaches replay and they're trying to figure out, is it this way or is it this way? Whatever thing benefited Kansas City, that he was convinced that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And so he has a hard time being, I was trying to teach him this word, what it means to be subjective versus objective. And I said, but you have a hard time being objective about your team. It means that you can judge without having influence based off of what benefits you the most. But we all have that tendency and we have that tendency with God that we can look at the world around us and say, well, hey, yeah, I mean, there's some bad things going on. But when we look at our own life, we say, well, God, why isn't, and why can't, and why would you? That's what they were doing in Malachi. They're shaking their fist at God because they're saying, where is your justice? While simultaneously, they were living lives that did not give justice to those who needed it. God's saying in this message, he's saying that Jesus is going to come. He's looking ahead to the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's gonna bring a refining fire. And part of that refining fire for believers, followers of Jesus is that it then results in us living lives that reflect the image of God to the world around us and how we do justice to those who need help. There's a professor who wrote a number of different Malachi commentaries and in, in writing about this section, here's what he says. Malachi's fourth disputation introduces a new topic, the coming of the divine messenger to cleanse God's people and restore true worship and obedience to the ethical standards of the law. If Yahweh's name was to be great among the nations, it had to be represented among them by a people and priesthood that was pure and obedient to his covenant. He's raising up this bar and saying, that's what we as Christians are called to do and to be. On May 25th, 1961, there's a famous moment where President JFK is standing in front of Congress and he makes a pretty crazy and bold declaration. He gets up in front of Congress and this is what he says. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And now some background of what's happening simultaneous to this is you've got the Cold War going on. And so you have Russia and you have the United States of America and they're really the two world powers. And every other country in the world is watching those two because they represented not just two countries, but two different government styles, two different ways of life. And so the space race in the world perspective was front and center as who will win, Russia or America. So there's a lot of politics behind the space race. JFK stands up and says, we within the next 10 years are gonna put a man on the boom and bring him home. 
It's interesting he threw that part in there. He didn't just say, we're gonna put a man on the moon. Good luck. No, he said, we're gonna put a man on the moon and bring them home safely. Here's a little bit of context about how wild of a declaration that was. Only 20 days before Kennedy's speech was the first time an American had ever been launched into space. It was Alan Shepard. He had spent 15 minutes, 22 seconds in space on May 5th, 1961. I mean, he basically just went up, floated for a second and then came right back down. That was it. Russia was far more advanced than we were at this moment in history when it came to the space race. At this point, an American had never orbited Earth in space. We're about to go try and orbit, orbit the moon. We had never orbited our own planet. And then here's probably the craziest piece of it. The president was declaring that we would put an American on the moon, which was 238,900 miles away in less than 10 years. Now, NASA was not created by JFK. It had been created by Eisenhower a few years earlier than that. They just hadn't accomplished much so far, especially when compared to Russia. Part of the reason they hadn't accomplished so much is that they had some, some very enigmatic goals. Like they were just kind of all over the place. Uh, here, they had seven different goals. Here was goal number one. If you go Google it, you can read the other six. Uh, but goal number one was the expansion of human knowledge of phenomena in the atmosphere and space. Like if you ask me, what does that mean? I got no clue. I have no clue what, what it means to do that. And they had seven goals that were exactly like that. They were just kind of out there. They were kind of nebulous. They were just kind of, and so JFK gets up there and he says, hey, I'm not going to make landing on the moon a goal because it's way too big to be a goal. I'm gonna make it the goal. And so he said, those seven goals, you got just trash them. Just get rid of them, just ignore them. You have one goal. And that goal is that within the next 10 years, I want you to put a man on the moon. People thought it was crazy. People thought it was impossible. People thought it could never happen. And then on July 20th, 1969, an estimated 530 million people from around the world. That at the time was 14% of the world's population. They watched TV as Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon and declared that famous phrase, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. How did they do it? Here's how it's because NASA had one wildly important goal and they were successful. It was too big to be a goal. It had to be the goal. So here's the question for you, the question for me, the question for us about our own lives. What is the wildly important goal of your life? And if you just stop for a second and reflect, look inward and think by the way that you're living, what, what's the goals of your life? And probably like most people, you've got a whole bunch of different goals. Well, I wanna do this and I wanna do that. I wanna accomplish this. I wanna be good at that. I wanna be good at that. And so often we can live lives like NASA. We're trying to do everything and because we're trying to do everything, we're not doing anything really all that well. Okay, can I give you this challenge? God is too big to be a goal in your life. He doesn't leave room for that. God has to be the goal in your life. Is he the wildly important goal of your life? 
It is what that passage in Malachi is talking about, this refining process where God wants to refine us in such a way that the world around might look at you and look at me and look at our lifestyle. And in looking at us, they see the reflection of God and how we think and how we talk and how we live. But if you're gonna accomplish that, there's a really big question. This refining process is getting rid of the junk and getting rid of the junk and getting rid of the junk. And so if my wildly important goal really is to be refined by God in such a way that I'm declaring his glory in all that I am to the world around me, then I have to wrestle with this question right here. What is the dross that needs to be removed in order to achieve that goal? The interesting thing about NASA is that in achieving the one goal, they accomplished a lot of the old goals. That before they had all these nebulous seven goals that they were trying to accomplish at the same time, they couldn't really accomplish them. They changed to the one goal. And in seeking after that one goal, it actually checked a lot of those other boxes. You see in my life and in your life, that same thing happens. That if I'm trying to make God a goal and not the goal, what happens is he just gets spread out amongst everything else. And there's probably a lot of good goals you have in life. You probably want to be a, a good spouse or a good parent or a good coworker or a good this. But, but here's the beauty of the gospel that if I make the goal of my life, honoring God, living for God, loving God, and if I seek and pursue after that wildly important goal above everything else, then guess what happens in all these other areas of my life? That in pursuing him, I become a better husband. In pursuing him, I become a better parent and a better coworker and a better person. That it is the result of pursuing God's holiness. What would happen? Just, just imagine in your own life, look internally and say, what would happen if I really didn't just have one foot towards God and one foot trying to be in the world, but I really went all in? and really said, okay, I'm gonna make that the most important thing. How would that change who you are? How would that change your finances, where you spend your money? How would that change your time? How would that change your mornings? How would that change your evenings? How would that change your relationships? How would that change your habits? God is way too big to be a goal in our life. God wants to be the goal in our life. And if we will pursue that more than anything else, the result of that can be beautiful in every area. What would it look like if Cherry Hills really raised up a whole church of people that were being refined by God and pursuing God and that we were reflecting the image of God to the world around us? What could he do in us and through us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, we always think of of you as loving and compassionate and full of grace and you are all of those things. And yet there's also scripture that tells us that you are a judge, that you wanna refine us, God, that you want us to, to have the dross removed away from our life. And you want it because you want what's best for us. God, you want the sin, the brokenness to be removed so that we can reflect your holiness. God, we know that we can't do it by ourselves. And so God, help us to on our face, submit to you, uh, seek you and your refinement and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us to live lives that are different. God, it's so easy in our culture to have foot, one foot in our relationship with you and one foot out to make you a goal instead of the goal. And so God, help us to wrestle with what it would look like if you were the goal of our life above and beyond anything and everything else 
Lord, we want to reflect you. God, we wanna be a church that magnifies your name. We wanna lift high the name of Jesus and we recognize we can't do it alone. So help us, Lord, is our prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.